in Oregon, and I am only an admirer of stained glass windows. I do not have any idea how to take them apart or put them back together, as Kevin Kibrowski does. And I can carry a tune. I'm an alto. We had some alto conversations at our table, but I can't perform so well as to tour around the world like the Orlando Consort has done for 35 years. And although Bill Roberts is a fellow Mississippi Delton from my husband's hometown, the music in the air in the Delta gave him far more gifts than I have. So I don't know how I have been so fortunate as to share a stage with all of these brilliant minds and hands and voices that you have heard from except by Jeff's generous invitation and your willing presence here tonight. And I suppose also because of my own expertise in the area of scavenger hunts. <laughs> that may not be what you expected from me this evening, <laughs> but here we are. So, nope, wrong direction. Before I was an Episcopal priest, I was a full-time youth minister, and before that, a camp counselor, and before that, an active member of the youth group at the church where I grew up. And as such, I have known for a very long time that every game out there is just some variation on tag or a scavenger hunt. <laughs> There are all kinds of scavenger hunts, seek, and you will find. There's the familiar old list of things, now go find them and bring them back kind of scavenger hunt. And sometimes the list is random, like find a paper clip, a glove, a chocolate chip cookie, and a feather. <laughs> and then sometimes the list is um, according to a theme, find all these things that are red, or find all these things that are round. And then there's the reverse scavenger hunt, which is really best done at camp, when you send everyone back to their cabins to collect and bring back in a bag as many things as they think might end up on a scavenger hunt list, and then they find out what is actually on the list and they have to rummage through the bag and be the first team to bring that item to the front. There are photo scavenger hunts, which we did back in my day with Polaroid cameras, but of course now everybody has a phone camera with them. There are outreach scavenger hunts. Once we sent the youth group out with a list of pantry items to find for the local food bank by knocking on neighborhood doors and asking if they had a can of soup or a box of spaghetti. And then there are sneaky scavenger hunts that are actually lessons in disguise with lists of things for the kids to find in scripture or in a prayer book or somewhere out on the church grounds, how many and what kinds of animals are in the nativity stained glass window, for example? What year was the church founded? And if you've had a hard week and you need a game to keep your youth group occupied for a good long while, 
the very best scavenger hunt is to write the numbers 1 to 100 on separate post-it notes, stick them all around the church in out-of-the-way places, and send them out. <laughs> I am absolutely certain that there is still a 57 and an 83 stuck somewhere behind a bookcase or inside a cabinet at the last church where I served as a youth minister. <laughs> So when I went to seminary in New York City, I was ready to leave youth ministry behind me. One too many scavenger hunts. I was looking forward to learning about lifelong faith formation and pastoral ministry and worship leading and preaching. After all those years of pizza and pool parties and scavenger hunts, I was suddenly now surrounded by adults taking classes in Old and New Testament and Biblical Greek and theology and church history and Christian ethics. It turned out that adults weren't so different than teenagers, <laughs> except that we pay taxes, I guess. We ate a lot of pizza too, and we needed study breaks, and we enjoyed a good old game night. So maybe that's why in our first semester of liturgics, the study of liturgy, our first assignment was a scavenger hunt. <laughs> the rubric for the assignment sent us out to visit two churches in the city, St. Thomas Episcopal Church, Fifth Avenue, and St. Peter's Lutheran Church, Lexington Avenue. We were supposed to compare and contrast the architecture and interior aesthetics of each one, considering how the worship space shapes our worship experience and what each worship space suggests about who God is and who we are as God's people. There wasn't really a list of things to seek and to look for, but we knew from our own worship experiences and from our class lectures and course reading that we should probably take into account our scavenger hunt, things like color and light, wood and stone and fabric and glass and precious metals, pews and tables and lecterns and musical instruments and hymnals and prayer books and art. All church buildings, writes the Reverend Dr. Patrick Comerford, all church buildings tell a story but they tell them in different ways, with different emphases. They convey, communicate different theologies. Where does the presider sit? And what does that say about what that role is like in that congregation? Where does the choir sit? Does the congregation sit? Is there an altar, a table? Are there steps leading up into the pulpit, or is it flat on the ground? What sources of light are there? Are sounds echoed or absorbed in that space? Where in the worship space are baptisms done? <laughs> the baptismal font, by the way, was the only thing that our professor specifically said that we should find in these two churches. It wasn't in the written rubric. He just said it with a wink 
and a smile that suggested that the 10-page paper we were going to have to write for this assignment was not going to be the hard part. <laughs> I'll tell you more about that in a bit. So we had already learned a little bit about the history of church buildings ever since in the beginning when God said, let there be and there was, was ground to walk on and air to breathe and water to wade in and trees to shelter beneath and stars to light our way. And it was all very good ever since. We have been intentional about marking the places and moments in this world where we have met and worshipped God. Jacob poured oil over the stone that had been his pillow the night that God spoke to him in a dream. And though there were no walls or roof there, still he called it the house of God. Moses removed his shoes before a bush ablaze with God, who said that the ground was holy, and though it was not made of marble or polished wood, but rather just loose dirt, gravel, and dusty old roots. The wilderness, God's people built a tent for God's presence, a place of prayer that would go with them wherever they went. In the land of promise, a temple was built, a kingdom was established, and the temple would be the dwelling place of God, a place of pilgrimage where all might come to offer up their prayers and thanksgivings. Every town and village had a synagogue in which the word of God was read, learned, and taught, and sacred meals were shared at home around the dinner table. And so Jesus, a faithful Jew shared many meals with family. He sat at many dinner tables with friends and all who were his neighbor. He often taught at synagogues and he went to the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus also prayed on hillsides and on beaches and in boats, in gardens and at city gates and the marketplace on the road. Those who followed him whom he sent out into the world and witnessed to his love, they continued to meet at first in the synagogue on Fridays to hear Holy Scripture. But they also began gathering on Sundays in one another's homes for the meal in which Jesus had told them they would always find him. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Before long, the service of the word and the service of the table were joined together in those home churches on Sundays. Christians were safer there than in the synagogues watched by Rome. In spite of persecution, the church grew. And after seeing the sign of the cross in the sky before a decisive military victory, even the Emperor Constantine himself converted to Christianity. Worship then, as part of the empire, was moved into basilicas, large public 
buildings with wide aisles between rows of columns that drew the eye inward toward the apse, which was a curved wall at the far end with a rounded ceiling overhead. Images were painted there in the apse of Christ or Mary or any number of saints who were bathed in abundant light from the clear story windows. This one's not an ancient Roman basilica, but many churches are still built in that style. With the support of the emperor and then of those who would rule after Rome fell, the Christian faith flourished. Worship spaces became more ornate over the centuries, liturgies more elaborate, and church leadership more hierarchical. The nave of the church, where the congregation sits, grew longer in one direction, and the chancel where the clergy and choir sat grew longer in the other direction. And ceilings soared upward, supported by arches and buttresses. Stained glass and statuary filled churches with scenes from Holy Scripture, the watchful eyes of saints and angels always were present in worship. So for almost 1,500 years, church buildings and the prayers that were prayed within them spoke of the majesty and magnificence of God through symbols and sacraments, the beauty of holiness and the authority of the ordained. But the scavenger hunt <laughs> to find God in that space for the ordinary worshiper in the farthest back pew barely able to participate in a service whose language and movements were a mystery, the scavenger hunt had gotten hard. In the Protestant Reformation worship spaces were stripped of what were perceived as excesses to focus instead on just the hearing and preaching the story of salvation. Today, church buildings are as wonderful and varied as the people who worship within them. St. Thomas, Fifth Avenue, when we went there, uh, is, if you've never seen it, it sits four blocks south of Central Park and across the street from Coach, Ferragano, and Cartier. <laughs> it is a neo-Gothic Building surrounded on all sides by chrome and glass and concrete and credit cards. Saints carved in stone fill the arches over the massive doors and they look down on crowded sidewalks and noisy streets. But inside, all that noise is hushed. The air is incense and light filters through millions of pieces of colored glass, and even full of visitors, it feels spacious. St. Peter's Lexington looks at street level like the atrium of a neighboring skyscraper or an entrance to the subway. It is, in fact, both. The church itself 
is on a lower level of the building, below street level. But the first thing you see when you go inside is light, natural light pouring in from above through clear windows that arch up over the ceiling of the church and then down the other side. Everything in the church, except for the brightly colored cushions, is white or neutral, and everything except for the pipe organ is movable. Looking up when you're seated for worship, you see sidewalks, people, and passing cars. Beneath your feet, you feel the rumble of the subway. The sounds of the city are there, but so is the sound of water flowing into the baptismal font. So if St. Thomas lifts us up and out of the city to meet Christ in heavenly mystery, St. Peter's immerses us in the city to meet Christ in its midst. And in truth, the one whom we worship is both Jesus Christ, the one who in the beginning was with God and through whom all things were made, the one who by the power of the Holy Spirit was born of a human mother. So it should not surprise us, writes liturgical scholar James White, it should not surprise us that a religion whose fundamental doctrine is the incarnation should take space seriously in its worship. Wherever we say our prayers, on a back porch at sunset, in an auditorium with a praise band, at the high altar of a cathedral, behind the wheel of traffic, what we see and hear and taste and touch and smell informs our prayers, shapes them, inspires them. Whether we are meeting Christ in heavenly mystery or in the midst of life's daily rounds, through stained glass or clear windows, we are meeting him through our experiences of the places we have been and the place where we are. In the beginning, for Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Rachel and Leah, prayer was mostly private, conversation between one person, God. Even then, though, a stone was laid or an altar was built in the places where those conversations happened so that others passing by might know that they were places of prayer, that God had been found and met there. So in the same way now, our Christian worship spaces tell the world that wherever else he may be found in this world, Jesus may be found here. Walls don't just speak. Buildings are blabbermouths, writes architect Ron Geyer. Through brick and mortar, color and light, they tell us, each in their own way, about the one whom we worship.
one of my favorite worship spaces on the beautiful little island of Iona, Scotland. It's a long scavenger hunt, but it's worth it. I'm going to send you on a scavenger hunt, at least in your imagination, for just a few moments. I want you to go to a worship space that you know and love. I know that for many of you, that's probably right here. <laughs> Maybe there's another place that you've worshipped in your life that has been very dear to you, very special. Or perhaps it's a worship space in which you've struggled to find God. Maybe both things are true of the same space. And as you imagine that space, wonder how for you that space is a place of transcendence. As you look around that space in your imagination, how is it a place of transcendence? How is it a place of incarnation, intimacy? You go into that worship space. What is the first thing you see? It might be different than someone else walking into that worship space. Talked to mom with a couple of kids who said that they had talked about walking into a new church they had been visiting on vacation. And one of the kids said, first thing I see is the backs of people's heads. <laughs> They're all facing forward. And the other one, the first thing he saw was a donkey. <laughs> because it was in that nativity stained glass window that was the first thing that caught his eye. Those are two very different experiences, the same worship space. This is the first thing you see in that worship space that you love. This is the first thing that you hear. What does it sound like? When you walk into that worship space, what is the first thing that you touch? Do you notice that your feet are walking on centuries-old plush carpet? <laughs> or a creaking wooden floor? Cool stone? You touch a pew as you pass it by? Pick up a piece of paper? What is the first thing you smell their flowers on the table where the church bulletins are, their incense. It's risky, I know, incense. What is the first thing that worship space tells you about who God is? Where have you met Jesus there? Maybe in a sermon? Maybe in a window? Maybe in the passing of the peace? I was going to invite us to sit and talk at our tables about this. 
It was a good piece of cake and an amazing meal. And I know the end of the day we might be weary. So I'm going to have this up there just so y'all can see the questions. This is my favorite Far Side cartoon. You found Jesus? You see him? Sometimes Jesus is hiding in our worship spaces. And sometimes he's right there where we can see him. And sometimes we discover we're the ones who have been hiding from him. So, where in your worship space have you found Jesus? A window, in a choir anthem, in a candle. Worship spaces come in all shapes and sizes, ornamented and plain, resonant and sound-absorbing, traditional and modern, Presbyterian, Episcopal, Lutheran, Roman Catholic, all sorts and conditions of Christians. But some elements, though, of architecture and aesthetics are essential in churches, found in the earliest house churches, in the basilicas of Rome, in the cathedrals of the Middle Ages, the sanctuaries of the Reformation, and in most Christian worship spaces today. And I saw them all in the beautiful sanctuary here. The Reverend Foy Christofferson calls these elements the places of encounter in worship, the tried and true places, like that place where jo Jacob had his dream and he put a stone there so that others would know. These are the tried and true places where God in Christ has been found and met. Christ is present, Christofferson writes, in the word proclaimed and preached, in the meal of holy communion, in the bath of holy baptism, and in the assembly, the gathering. These are the action places and moments of our worship services, when something happens in worship, moments when we are brought into deeper relationship with God and God's people. Christopherson goes on to explain in, in proclamation, in hearing the word, we meet God, and the word proclaimed in scripture in our midst. In Holy Communion, we meet God in the bread and wine and in one another in our outstretched hands. In Holy Baptism, we meet God in water and in the assembly, we meet God in God's people. Our worship spaces then have always had since in the beginning of the Christian church. Our worship spaces need a place from which scripture can be read, a table for sharing a meal, a font to hold the water of baptism, and a space for the gathered body of Christ. These moments of encounter, places of encounter, are important. A place for proclamation. There has always been somewhere for rabbi in the earliest days of the church when they were Jewish Christians or a priest or a layperson to open the scriptures and share them with the congregation. Some places have a, a lectern or pulpit in which the Bible is always open there. 
and some have a separate lectern for the Bible and a pulpit for the preacher, and some places use one piece of furniture for both. And they do, sometimes it's called an ambo. In medieval churches, the pulpit, though ornate, seemed pretty small compared to the treatment over the altar. That said something about who God is in that place. The ceremonial and mystery of the sacrament was a bigger part of the service than the word that was spoken. In Reformation churches, the pulpit might rise up over the altar table or even stand in front of it. Then this little church, big church, where the pulpit is raised above the altar. In my husband's seminary in Sewanee, the pulpit and the altar table were on either side of center in the sanctuary as to show that each had equal importance. But the student sacristans who took care of the chapel would, would every time they cleaned up after a service, they'd inch the altar over a little bit, and they'd inch it over a little bit more uh, until one of the faculty would figure it out and they'd move it back. They learned. <laughs> um, lighting is important for the reader and for the preacher so that they can see their text, but also to allow listeners to see the person, to see their mouth moving, the facial expressions, all of which preach. If you've ever read a book or heard a storyteller, you know that the story is mostly in the storyteller's face and in their tone of voice. And if you can't see that face, you miss part of it. Does the voice need amplification? Or is there already an echo? In some churches, a pulpit isn't used at all. The preacher speaks from the floor, which also says something very different about the relationship between God and the people. There's much more intimacy in that, unless the preacher starts walking up and down the aisle as they preach. And so you kind of get, <laughs> just having to watch. Where are they going next? <laughs> a place for the meal, place of encounter. Different churches place different emphasis on the meal that we call by many names, Holy Communion, Holy Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the Great Thanksgiving. But again, since in the beginning we have always gathered around a table to share a meal that nourishes us, to share a meal that reminds us that we are together, part of one community. This meal is not so different than that. Reverend Christofferson calls it an altar table, not just an altar or just a table, because in that place of encounter, we meet the one who offered himself for us, which makes the word altar important. Is also where we share a meal with him, which makes the word table important. In house churches among Jewish Christians, it was the primary act of worship at first. In basilicas in the Roman period, the altar table was very near the people, but in time it got moved further and further back into the chancel where the clergy sat and 
even against the wall, so that when someone stood at the altar to say the prayer over the bread and wine they had their pack turned to the congregation, there was no longer that sense of being gathered together round a table. In some places, the altar looks like a table, in some it looks more like a tomb. If there's no, um, well, my dining room table isn't solid across the front, maybe yours is. But, um, but that's by intention too. Many of the first Christians gathered in catacombs to worship, and their tables were the tops of the tombs of those who had gone before them. The altar may be elaborately carved or simple, it may be draped in fabric or plain, there may be candles upon it, it may be set for a feast uh, with, with all sorts of ornamentation or for just a quick meal of bread and wine. There's steps going up to the altar. You have to climb up to it. Is there a rail around the altar? How accessible is it? Dad and his wife are also both Episcopal priests. Family dinners are fun. And um, the place where they served had an altar rail with a gate. And when they went there, there was this tremendous ceremonial that went along with closing the gate before communion. There were acolytes and there were movements and it was done and you moved the cushions that you were going to kneel on and they just felt like that was ridiculous. So they decided that uh, they were going to tear the curtain of the temple in two <laughs> and they made a big deal of taking the gates off the hinges and never putting them back on again. What does the meal space in the place where you worship, in that sanctuary that you love, which is the table or altar, the ornamentation of it, the accessibility of it, the way the meal is served. Do people come to the table, or is the meal taken to them? What does the meal space say about who God is, who we are, what the relationship is between us and God, and between each other? Right, two more than we're done. Place for the bath. Like the log flume at the state fair, you will get wet on this ride. Christian worship begins in the water. In the Episcopal tradition, I'm not actually sure in this Presbyterian tradition, but in our tradition, many, many people, most, are baptized as infants. And so most of us don't remember what it feels like to have water running down your head, to come up from under the water, born anew. And so uh, when we renew our baptismal covenant, we'll fill the font with water and sprinkle it all over people. And um, we have to tell them we're doing that ahead of time <laughs> so that they don't wear silk. Um, but most of us don't remember it. And so my liturgy professor in seminary, Reverend Dr. Jim Farwell, said that um, while, while a little dabble do ya, we can just sprinkle that water on you, and that's fine. That's historically uh, a permissible way to baptize. But even if we're using a small font, even then, we should use enough water to help us fully grasp 
the power of this particular encounter, our first encounter with the body of Christ. And our prayer, in, in our prayer, when we bless the water, we say we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him to eternal life. We should use enough water to drown in. We should use enough water to bathe in. We should use enough water to wash away our sins and all that separates us from God, and so we become new. Baptism in the early church was done in a separate room in the house church called a baptistry. It's a hard word to say. It's a powerful symbol to move from that room after your baptism into the assembly room, the room where everyone else was worshiping, and to receive communion there for the first time. It has always been traditional to use living water, moving water. And those traditions that still baptize by immersion don't have a lot of trouble being able to do that. But one of the reasons why pouring water or sprinkling it is permissible is when we don't have a lot of water available to us. Instead of just kind of dipping a kid in a bowl of water, <laughs> we pour the water. We move the water over them. It really is a bath. It really is living water. In our seminary scavenger hunt, I told you I would tell you this. At St. Thomas Fifth Avenue, that big Gothic cathedral, we did look for the font everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. We looked in corners. We looked in all the places we thought it would be at the entrance. Is it the first thing you see when you come into the church? Dip your hand in and touch your head to remind you. Is it the last thing you see as you go out into the world remembering your baptismal call? No, not there. <laughs> Is it up near the altar connecting that bath to the meal? No. Finally, we actually had to ask a docent to help us with the altar. And he walked us over to one of the giant stone columns in one of the side chapels off the main nave. And there, we hadn't noticed, was a little knob on the column. And he opened the door. And there, in the column, was the baptismal font. We apparently didn't have the password to become <laughs> part of the body of Christ in that place. That's very judgmental of me to say the font in a place people can get to it. We went to St. Thomas first and then to St. Peter's and as you walk into St. Peter's you have to try not to fall in to the font. <laughs> it is right there as you enter, as you go down into the worship space. You cannot enter the worship space without passing by and the steps that lead you into the church also go down into the font so that if you don't watch where you're walking, you will get wet on that ride. <laughs> what does the bath space, the font, or pool, its placement, its accessibility, what does the baptismal space in that worship place you love say about who God is, who we are, and what it means to be in relationship with God. And finally, my favorite, the place 
of the assembly, place of the gathering. And James White, the liturgist, says the Christian community needs to assemble in order to worship. And this act of coming together may be the single most important activity of the congregation. Before we can worship together, we have to be together. We need a space to gather. It was intimate in the synagogue and in the house church and in small parish churches like the ones where I am now. And there's not a whole lot of space to differentiate between where the people sit and the clergy sit and the choir sit. We're just all there. By the medieval period when the nave and chancel had lengthened and sometimes were even separated by screens, Priests and monks could worship without even having a congregation present, or if the congregation was there, they couldn't see or participate. More and more of the activity took place where the priests sat. So the Reformation returned to the altar and font and pulpit to the space in which the congregation Naves were widened and balconies were built to allow the congregation to better see and hear. The Roman Catholic Church, after Vatican II, started worshiping in the round. Seating at St. Thomas Fifth Avenue is in rows and rows of pews. And you do get a sense, as I imagine we do here in this sanctuary, of being drawn together toward the object of our worship toward the word of God in Christ. We are literally in the same boat, moving forward together. On the other hand, that seating formation restricts movement a little bit, and we can't see one another's faces. Seating at St. Peter's Lutheran can be arranged in any configuration, often in the round. And there's a sense of equality and community in that layout. On the other hand, it may feel too vulnerable. It might be difficult for the preacher or the presider at worship to constantly turn around to look everyone in the eye. In some places, back in one of those others, the one that had the, the pulpit high above the altar, it had the closed off pews that you saw. I grew up in South Carolina and many of the churches in the lower part of the state still, still have seating like that in the Episcopal Church. People owned those pews, they rented them, and uh, we were there one summer and stopped in at one of these beautiful Charleston Episcopal churches to worship and bulletin and sat down and we were tapped on the shoulder by an usher and said, you can't sit there. That's somebody's cue. <laughs> is that experience like when you walk into a worship space? Is it a room full of observers? Or is it a room full of participants in a communal event? Is there space for children in that worship is there space for people with disabilities? What does the gathering place in the sanctuaries you have known and loved, place where the congregation gathers, what does that space say about who God is and who we are, what our relationship with God and one another is?
So, where would Jesus sit? In the place where the word is proclaimed as he sat once in the synagogue and read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah? Would he sit at the table of Thanksgiving where he is both host and feast? He sit by the water where we receive the words he heard at his baptism. You are my beloved. With you I am well pleased. Would he sit with the congregation, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand? In our worship spaces, wherever they are, wherever you went in your imagination, Jesus is in windows of colored glass that show scenes from his life and death and resurrection. He is in windows of clear glass that allow us to see the people and the world he came to love. Jesus is in elaborate anthems with soaring descants that seem sung by angels. And he is in the silence that follows a prayer for the sick and the suffering. Jesus is in marble floors and cinder block walls. He's in a congregation of thousands and wherever two or three are gathered. He is in our worship spaces. We find him there because he is in us. You, me, and he is especially in the community that we become when we come together to pray. Church is us, James White explains. In the words of ancient Christians, the building used for worship, the building is the domus ecclesiae, the house of the church. The bricks and mortar of our buildings say something about who God is and who we are and what the relationship is between us and God and between one another. Worship spaces shape our prayers and speak on our behalf, for better or worse. How much more do the flesh and bone and beating hearts of God's people, the church, how much more does all of that say something about who God is and who we are and what the relationship is between us and God who became God with us between one another? Yes. Our gathered lives and bodies shape our prayers and speak on behalf of God in Christ whose hands and feet we now are. We go to church because we are the church. Because when we go back out into the world, we are still the church, the dwelling place of God. The summer camp in the Episcopal Diocese of Mississippi, our worship space is an outdoor chapel where the word is proclaimed right in front of the people the meal is shared around a simple wooden altar, and the lake is used for baptism, and the congregation gathers on rows of benches in the dirt. The Reverend Joe Robinson, once a camp counselor there, wrote a song 
that is still sung beside that lake today and in worship spaces throughout the diocese, still sung in the church, by the church. And it's this. We're gathered here, the tired, the poor, the overworked, the lost, the lame. And though we bring a million faces, we are known by just one name. Through the water, in the desert, over mountains, by the shore, we have followed where you led us, and we're here to follow more. Lord, be with us in spirit as we journey from the church into the street. Each meeting yield a neighbor, and each handshake with Christ's holy peace to greet. Every meal a great communion, every bath baptism be. Let us lose our lives in worship, and then find them, Lord, thee. Amen.